morning we will be <clears throat> discussing, again, God's sovereignty, God's love for His children. But I want us to, to consider how it would affect our faith if we really took time to focus upon the sure and unchanging hand of God over all things. Um, I'm sure we've all heard the phrase, you know, all means all, all the time. Well, if God is over all things, that really does mean all things. And as we consider that He not only works everything to the counsel of His own will, but it is for the good pleasure of His will that He works all things together for the good of His people. And most supremely, all things work together for the glory of His own name through His Son, Jesus Christ. How would that stabilize our faith? How would that ground our faith? How would that cause our faith to kind of grow some roots to where we could be immovable and unshakable in our faith if we really just stop to contemplate that? Because again, I don't think, I know that I haven't met a Christian. I don't think that you have probably ever met a professing Christian who says, no, you know, when I really break it down, I don't really think that God is over all things. I think that God just tries his best and then there's a lot that... We get in the way and we cause to go wrong, but God's not really in control. I know I've never met a professing Christian who says that. I highly doubt that you've met a professing Christian that says that. That is something that most Christians will, at the very least, tip their cap to. Is God over all things? Yeah, I believe that. I'm a Christian. But what would happen if we really took time to contemplate that, meditate upon that, and even, daringly enough, ask ourselves the question, do I really believe that? Do I really believe He's over all things? Do I really believe that He works all things according to the counsel of His own will? Do I sincerely believe that none can stay His hand? Do I sincerely believe that God does as He pleases with the inhabitants of earth and in heaven? Do I really believe uh, that God, as the creator of all things, is the only one who has the authority over all of creation and all things? His people will be saved. All who believe will be saved. His people will be saved. His Son, Jesus Christ, will have the preeminence over all things. Just like God has willed to happen. All things were created through Him and for Him. And God alone will have the glory, the honor, the power, and the praise forever and ever. Amen. Do we believe these things? If we truly believe these things, it will change us, the way we live, our outlook upon things, the way that we respond to turmoil, the way that we, re the way that we respond to strife, the way that we respond to unforeseen circumstances. If we genuinely believe that God is over all things, it will change our lives. It will. It's not a, and I don't say that as, hey, I'm not, I'm not trying to give you a sales pitch this morning. I'm not up here trying to tell you, hey, don't you want your life to feel better? Don't you want your life to be better? Well, I'm here to tell you a trick to how to how to have your better life. No, this is just matter of fact. If you don't believe this, then your faith and your Christianity, biblically speaking, has reason to be called into question. This is just matter of fact. We say that we believe God is over all things. Do we truly believe it? And the biblical truth is those that have come to the understanding that God is God. I know that sounds like such a profound thing, right? But when we really understand that that is true. God is God and there is no other God besides Him. And because He is the one true God of all creation, we can trust His Word. And because His Word tells us, the testimony of Himself tells us, He truly is over all things. We can actually rest in that. We don't have to worry about, oh, but what if that's not really true? It is true. Rest in it. Rest in the promises of God. Rest in Christ, your Savior. So, with these thoughts in mind, let's, let's come to... You can turn to 1 Peter if you want to. That's, that's probably going to be the first reference of Scripture that we actually take time to look at. This sermon is a little bit different than the sermons I normally preach. I don't... I don't even really enjoy doing topical sermons, but this kind of is a topical sermon. Um, so everything that we're going through right now, you could call preamble or introduction. But the, the first scripture that we're probably going to look at together is going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. But if we were just to open the scriptures to the book of Genesis, we would, we would be in the very start of all creation. 
In the beginning, God. But this is our beginning. This is the beginning of creation as we know it, right? Genesis is a history of how we came into being, how all of creation came into being. In the beginning, God. God has no beginning and no end. He's outside of time. He simply is. God is eternally existing in self-sufficient glory. Okay, so we, when we read the words in the beginning, it's not well, in the beginning God started to exist. It's no. In the beginning God and that's our existence. But we know that God is eternally existing. So we begin in Genesis. And we learn as we read of the creation of man. And as we read the history of Israel. And as we read the Old Testament. And then into the New Testament. When all of the Messianic prophecies are, are so miraculously uh, fulfilled. If we were to start in Genesis. We would see the creation. The fall. We would see the details of the flood. We would see the call of Abraham. We would see God's covenant with Abraham. We would have the exodus. We would have the law given to the people of God. We would have the repeated transgressions of Israel. Just to make sure we're all awake this morning. Uh, we're all aware that in the Old Testament, Israel fell flat on their face over and over and over and over again, right? There were repeated transgressions. From the people of Israel. But we also see the repeated long suffering and patience and love of God towards his covenant people. If we were to continue on in our scripture studies, working our way through Genesis, we would see time and time again the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. And we would see that fulfillment most prominently in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah coming, laying down his life, risen again. And we would know that also Christ himself fulfilled the law that was given. In the Old Testament. So we would see fulfillment. We would see details of things coming to be fulfilled in the scriptures. We would see the details of eternal life. Christ is the life. Only in him can we have eternal life. And we would see eternal glory. You, we, we hear Christians say it all the time. We hear a lot of, a lot of pastors say it. When things, when things get to going wrong or whatever else, you may hear a Christian say, but we know the end of the story. And we do. That's kind of become a cliche thing, but guys, we do know the end of the story. Like that is actually a truth that we shouldn't really view as cliche. We should view it and say, oh yeah, that's right. God has told us the truth. God has told us how things will end, not only for this world, but specifically for his people. And that's, that's a truth that we can rest in that, that no matter how bad things get here, even when the earth melts away with fervent heat, what is the end result of God's people? We will be with him eternally in glory forever. So we do know the end of the story. We could spend the rest of our lives day in and day out considering the wonders of God and his great love found within his word. And we would barely scratch the surface. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're reading a passage of scripture that you've read a thousand times before? And then all of a sudden you're just like, whoa, and you feel like you've, you're understanding it for the first time or your understanding of it just goes a little bit deeper and you're like, whoa. I didn't even realize that that actually connected with a passage in the Old Testament. And now I see God's love and His mercy and His grace even more clearly than I've ever seen it before. And yet, Scripture actually speaks of things that took place or that were set in place before the foundations of the earth. So if we started in Genesis and worked our way through, we would never... We would never get further than just scratching the surface of all of these things uh, that we just went through there. Namely, three things. God's covenant, His people, God's covenant with His people. The fulfillment of all of the promises of God. And the culmination of that in eternal glory. But yet, Scripture does speak of things that were set in place before the foundations of the earth. So, that's kind of my, my premise or my thesis or my theme, my main topic, whatever word you want to throw in there this morning. I want us to consider the fact that God, God has been working out His eternal plan, His eternal purposes before the foundations of the world. It isn't as if God created everything and said, I hope this goes well, and if it doesn't, I'm going to have to keep changing my plans here. No. It was set in place before the foundations of the world. 
We live within the span of time. There's actually scripture references that, that speak of a, a fullness of time. And so we know that time as we know it will come to an end. There is going to be a fullness of time. Well, what is God's plan for the fullness of time? To unite all things in Christ Jesus. And that plan, that, um, that will of God was set in place before the foundation of the world. So you say, Caleb, that's kind of cool. You know, I've never really thought about that before. That's a neat thought, but how does that help us? You know, how does that help my faith? How does that help me understand things? We serve the God of all creation who has eternally been working out and carrying out His will. And we know, or at least we ought to know, that nothing is going to hinder Him from accomplishing His divine purposes and that should strengthen our faith all of the things that we claim to have faith in well i have faith that through jesus christ i have eternal life and i'll never perish well in order to have faith in that you must also have faith that god really does exist because only if he really exists and only if christ really is his son that he was who he said he was only if that is true do you really have a hope of eternal life And that faith is bolstered when we understand, okay, God really is the one true God of all creation. We can trust Him. We've seen His hand in in all of creation. We have have the testimony of His Word. We can have a sure and steadfast faith and a sure and steadfast hope because we know He really is who He says He is. We really do have faith. We have come to know that He alone is God. So often... If we, just, if, if we just but look around, and maybe we don't even really need to look around. Maybe we just need to look in a mirror. There's so many professing Christians that they seem to be living a life without hope. And you come to them and you say, do you not have faith? Do you not? Yeah, I'm a Christian and I know that all of this is going to work out in the end. But I just, oh, life is just so hard and there's so much, just so much going on. And I'm not trying to, to poke fun. I'm, I've been there too. Sometimes we get into those, it's just like... This is it. I mean, I just, I don't know why in the world things have to be so hard for me. And I don't know why in the world this, and what's going to happen next. And oh, this is going wrong and this is going wrong. This is not how Christians ought to live. And I would say that the only way that we can actually get there in that moment is that we have shifted our eyes and our focus off of the fact that God really is God. Nothing is happening in our life that's by accident. Nothing is happening in the life of the world that is by accident. Because the Christians say, okay, things are hard right now. Things are difficult right now. I'm hurting right now. I'm mourning right now. We're going through so much right now. But praise be to God, I know that there is a purpose in it. And so then we approach God in prayer and you say, God, grant to us wisdom and understanding. What are you accomplishing here? How would you have our faith grow here, right here and now, in this moment, in this time where, where we're hurting? Our nation seems to be reeling. There's so many people that are, that are concerned about the course of the nation. Our brothers and sisters in Christ and Afghanistan are suffering. What is your purpose, God? How can our faith grow in these moments? How are you actually working this out for good for us, your people? Our brothers and sisters are dying overseas. They're being put to death simply because they're of the faith. How is this good? We can ask those questions, but we ask those questions with the understanding that it is certain there is a purpose. And there is a plan. And God is always accomplishing His purposes. So let's look at a few of these things that are, that are in Scripture that are before the foundation of the world. And... Hopefully this will ground us and this will settle us and it'll, this will give us a deeper understanding of the fact that, that God has eternally been working out His plan of redemption and salvation and for His own glory. And I know and I believe that through His Word and through granting us an understanding of this, our faith can be strengthened. It will be strengthened. And we will have a greater understanding which will lead us into a more sure hope and a more godly way of living. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, this was referenced in Sunday school. I was, I was kind of walking Wren around the back so she wouldn't start yelling. But I think this verse was even referenced uh, in the Sunday school hour. Ver, um, 
Verse 18, start there. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So Christians were ransomed. Christians were bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, Jesus Christ, was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus was foreknown or foreordained as the Lamb, the spotless Lamb, before the foundation of the world. He was known as the one who would redeem the people of God. This was settled before the foundation of the world. In Revelation 13, 8, it depends on... I found this out in my studies. I didn't realize that there was a... Uh, a difference in, in translation, but most of the translations in Revelation 13 say the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So even before the world was even formed, formed, Jesus has this title of the lamb that was slain. There was a purpose in that. Jesus was always going to be the savior. Jesus was always going to be the shepherd of God's people. Jesus was always going to be the spotless lamb that gave up his life on behalf of the people of God. It is not as if Israel got to a point and then God said, oh, this is it. I'm going to have to give Jesus. I'm going to have to give my son. No, that was always the plan. It was always the plan. But not only that, in Ephesians 1, which I know for certain, uh, this was part of the, the Sunday's lesson. I know the brother T referenced this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. So not only was Christ foreknown or foreordained before the foundation of the world, the believers, those that are in Christ Jesus, were chosen before the foundations of the world. So all of this is all of this is part of God's plan, and we are a part of God's will and, and the unfolding of his plan to unite all things in Christ Jesus. And you say, Where do you get that crazy idea, Caleb? Uniting all things in Christ Jesus. Well, it's also right here in Ephesians one, verse seven. We'll pick it up there. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all, our, um, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. So speaking of God's will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Christ foreknown, foreordained as the Lamb before the foundation of the world. Believers chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we know that it is God's will to unite all things in Christ Jesus. A plan for the fullness of time. But not only that, John 17. This is actually a prayer for those that are familiar with it. I know you know this, but for those who may not be familiar with John 17... Often referred to as the high priestly prayer of Christ. So this is a prayer offered up by Christ himself to the Father on behalf of his disciples and those who will believe in him. And as we near the end of this high priestly prayer, we come to verse 24. So John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me. Where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Christ was the beloved of the father. Christ was loved by the father before the foundation of the world. Here in John 17, he actually prays, Father, those of you, those whom you have given me, I pray that they will be with me where I am so that they can see my glory. So that they can see the, the divine, heavenly, eternal glory that, that is mine. So that they can see that. So that they can be with me where I am. 
Because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. And Ephesians 1, believers, those who are to come to faith in Christ, the, the chosen of God, are in Christ before the foundation of the world. So in a very real sense, this is, this is and, and may, well, I shouldn't say that. It's hard for me to understand. Uh, if y'all can understand it better than me, talk to me after the service and give me a better understanding. But when we think about this, it's hard for us to fully comprehend. But for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, God's steadfast love has actually been set upon us since before the foundation of the world. And that is hard for us to grasp or comprehend because it's even when we get into that concept of, well, we're inside of time, but God is outside of time. I don't know about you, but but my wheels start turning and things start burning and smoke's coming out of my ears and I can't I can't fully comprehend that. But but listen, if we were in Christ before the foundation of the world. And if the love of the father was set upon Christ before the foundation of the world. Then we have been eternally loved. By the father. And we will be eternally loved by the Father. And this is another reason that we can have a bolstered faith that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because it's a love that was set upon us before the foundations were even laid. Nothing can separate us from that. Now, what I'm about to say, I'm not saying to scare you, so please don't get worried. We're still not into the meat of this sermon. I know that we could sit here all day and talk about, oh, Caleb, you just opened up a can of worms. Now we're talking about before the foundations of the world. Let's let's keep let's dive into that. Let's dig into that a little bit. Stay with me. We're going to and I hate this, too, because if, if anybody knows me well, which I've got, I've got some people who know me real well sitting right here, my wife and some close friends, they'll tell you if there's anything Caleb Folsom does enjoy doing, it's digging deep and getting down. Chasing all of the rabbits till we get it, till we fill in all of the holes and gaps. But for the sake of the sermon this morning, I know I just mentioned a lot of things that might make our minds leap and say, oh, well, that makes me think of this or whatever. I'm using those three or four scripture references to prove this point so that we can continue on for this sermon. God has been working out and carrying out his decree and his will since before the foundation of the world. The reason that that should bolster our faith is for us to understand that once the creation was, was, was brought to come to pass, once man was created, once man started sinning and transgressions abounded and everything else, God isn't saying, oh, well, I wanted this to happen, now I've got to change my plan. Oh, I wanted that to happen, but now I've got to change. No. This, everything, is part of God's eternal plan. Okay, so... Let's start, and let's see that actually, I was going to go to Genesis 3. I'm throwing myself a curveball here. A couple references just to, just to really cement God's authority over all creation. Because, here's the thing, we might, we might say, okay, Caleb, I, I hear what you just said, but are, are there not times where God might want to do something, but man is just so stubborn or so stiff-necked that God doesn't get his way. And, and you know, in, in order for God to really carry out his purposes, you know, he's, he's got to really have full reign over all creation. To be able to say that nobody can stop his hand, nobody can hinder God from doing what he sets out to do. Well, it, it's interesting. We, every Christian will agree. Um, has Satan already been defeated by the death of the cross? Right? Satan was defeated really in Genesis 3 when it was just prophesied that the head of the serpent will be crushed. But then for like, will everybody's all on board with that. Oh yeah, Satan has been defeated. Satan can't stop God's hand at all. There's no way that Satan's going to hinder God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. But then when you say, well yeah, I, Satan can't do it, but you know, sometimes man gets in the way. And that's interesting to me. Because I don't know of anybody in here that you would say, I'm Satan can't stop God's hand, but I I'm even stronger when it comes to things when of spiritual things. I have even more power and even more authority than even Satan does. I I don't that's foolishness, right? Yet for some reason we think, well, when man gets involved, sometimes God just says, "Well, I wanted to do this, but man wouldn't let me." If Satan doesn't have that authority, 
What in the world makes us think we're so great that we have that authority to hinder God from doing what He's doing? I mean, I seem to recall some passages of Scripture where God just causes thousands of people to drop dead at the drop of a hat. I also seem to remember a few things in Scripture where time and time again, God did overcome the will of man and the strategies of Satan to still accomplish His purposes and His plans. We have that recorded for us over and over and over and over and over in the Scriptures. So just, I want us to, it's just two references, but I'm hoping these two references do help us kind of cement this in our mind so that then we can start at Genesis. And I'm going to do my best, I really am going to do my best, rapidly work through some of these things so we can kind of have a firm foundation uh, to really settle our faith in the sovereignty of God over all things. So, Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, is he remembered as a, as a stalwart of the faith? Is he remembered as a Christian king? When you think Nebuchadnezzar, what do you think about? Pagan? Babylon? Okay. We know that God caused Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm, this is very loosely, but basically caused Nebuchadnezzar to lose his mind, to cause his reason to depart from him, sent him out to pasture, so to speak. But we know that Nebuchadnezzar's reason returned to him. And it's interesting what this pagan king says when his reason returned to him. Daniel 4, verse 34, starting at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now that last little section there is basically saying, Nebuchadnezzar saying, that was me. I was the prideful one. I was the prideful human being. I was the one who thought I was doing everything and God humbled me. God does as He pleases. Revelation 17. Revelation 17. Just by way of a little bit of interaction. This isn't a trap question. Please just speak honestly with me. I know uh, growing up especially, and even, even as I was at college still kind of studying through some things, I would have some fear that bubbled up in me. But how many of you still to this day, there are certain sections of Revelation and you almost have, you almost have a sense of fear like, oh, that's anybody? Okay, thank you for being honest. Those of you who gave me a hand raise or a head nod. Understand this. What we're about to read in Revelation 17 is so comforting, um, or, or at least I hope it will be so comforting and so strengthening to understand. Because typically the, the parts that kind of cause us to say, oh, what, are we, what am I even reading about? You know, we hear about uh, the beast and the harlot or the beast and the prostitute. We hear about all of these things that are coming out of the ground. And it's like, what are we reading about? What is going on here? Revelation 17, starting in verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. I'm just curious now, I'm chasing, this is my ADD kicking in, but how many of you have ever heard sermons or read books where people tried to say like, what the ten horns are, or who the ten horns are, like you, they they go into detail about stuff like that. I'm not. I don't get caught up in stuff like that. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I mean, if you if you like researching that, that's fine. 
I don't get caught up in stuff like that because I read, I read stuff like this and it's just like, whew, I'm actually kind of relieved <laughs> that I don't have to know exactly who the ten horns are or what the ten horns are or anything else because of what we're about to read. The ten horns, they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire for, okay, so just pause right there. What's the reason? Right? What is the reason that they actually turn against the prostitute? What is the reason that they will, uh, they will cause her to be devoured? The reason is God has put it into their, into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Say, how is that supposed to help us, Caleb? How much authority does God have over all creation? Authority to the extent that even the beast and the harlot and the ten horns, He puts it in their hearts to carry out His purpose. Do we we grasp that? He puts it in their heart to carry out His purposes. Now, the, the mystery of all of that is... People that are doing wrong, people that are carrying out evil and, and everything else, people that are in this situation, people that are that are bringing things to a head, even in the book of Revelation, they're 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 pursuing their own desires. They're doing what they want to do. But the mystery of it all is they are still carrying out the purposes of God. That should that should comfort us as Christians. To know that even when things are seemingly going as wrong as they could possibly go to our feeble minds, we look at a situation and we say, it couldn't get any worse than this. Does that, does that negate the promise of God that He's working it all together for good for His people? Of course not. So how much authority does God have over all creation? He has all authority over all creation. Now, I want us to start. I've got four. I will, I promise you, I'll try to work through these quickly in a timely manner. But we're going to look at redemption. Redemption has always been the will of God. He has chosen a people for His own possession. His people have always had a shepherd. And it has always been the will of God that His people will be eternally with Him in glory. Those are, the, those are the four things that I want us to really lean into and say, if these things are true, if nothing can stop God from redeeming His people, if nothing can stop God from giving His people a shepherd that will shepherd them, that will shepherd their souls and lead them to eternal life, if nothing can stop God from bringing His people to Him in eternal glory, what have I to fear? What have I to question? If these things be true, why is my faith not steadfast? Why is my faith not immovable? If these things are true, why do we doubt? Why do we fear? Genesis chapter 3. Redemption has always been the will of God. Redemption has always been the will of God. Genesis chapter 3. Verse 14. Y'all didn't know y'all were going to be getting a hand workout. Some of y'all, I'm, I'm proud of y'all. Some of y'all are actually taking the time to turn to all these scripture references. I forgot to say at the beginning. There's going to be a lot of scripture references. You might not have time to turn to them all, but please at least write them down. Okay? Um, so those of you who are taking time, y'all are champs. Y'all are awesome. Okay? Genesis 3, starting in verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Right there. Gospel. The serpent will be defeated. But let's continue on. Jump to verse 20. Genesis 3, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Right there. What did Adam and Eve deserve? Death. What did they get? Covering for their shame. The gospel. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden 
He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we have the curse and we have the access to the tree of life being cut off. But what we have is a promise. The head of the serpent will be crushed. And we have God himself making coverings for the nakedness and the shame of Adam and Eve. When what they deserved was his judgment and his wrath. Instead, he clothed them. Redemption has always been the will of the Father. Ephesians 1, we've already read from there. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we are redeemed through His blood. If there was no fall, if there was no sin, Jesus' blood wouldn't have to be spilled to cover our sin. In Romans 5, you don't have to turn there, I'm not going to read, but Romans 5, we're actually told that Adam is a type of Christ. Adam and the fall is meant to teach us something about humanness. Even if we were a perfect human and all that, all, that was all that we were, was just human, we would still choose to rebel against God. It takes something greater than ourselves in order to have right standing before a holy father. It takes the God-man, Jesus Christ. But this was in place. This was in place before the foundation of the world, and it has always been the will of the Father to redeem his people. And in order to be redeemed, there must be a redeemer. And in order for there to be a redeemer, there must be something that we need to be redeemed from. Redemption has always been the plan. It has always been so that God has a people for his own possession. A chosen people for his own possession. Genesis chapter 12. I did my best to have an Old Testament reference and a New Testament reference for all of this. There's nothing magical about that. I don't expect you to say, oh, he had an Old Testament and a New Testament. Must be, uh, must mean I can definitely believe this without questioning anything. No, I want you to study these things out. I want you to take your time and, and really contemplate these things, meditate upon these things. Here's my goal with picking an Old Testament reference and a New Testament reference. All of Scripture is one cohesive story of God's redemptive plan. So, the things we read in the Old Testament, we should see them coming to pass or being fulfilled in the New Testament. And the things in the New Testament, we should see them be connected to and tied to the things in the Old Testament. And what that does is that actually undergirds our faith once more and helps us understand, wow, this is a story that we can believe. This is a narrative that we can look at and say, it has to be true. All of, the, all of these fulfillments, all of these things that have come to fruition, the only explanation is something divine is here. Something miraculous is taking place here. This must be truly the Word of God. This is a living, breathing Word. This is the testimony of God to His people. So, Old Testament, New Testament, we ought to be able to see a lot of connections there because the Old Testament isn't disconnected from the New Testament. That's another sermon for another time. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God has always had a people for his own possession. How many of you know that Abram wasn't born an Israelite? There was no such thing as Israel. Until God called Abram and said, I will make of you a great nation. And what was that nation? Nation of Israel. Abram wasn't born in Israel. There was, there was no such thing. It didn't exist. But that's what God does. God calls into existence things that don't exist. Romans chapter 4. I don't want to go to Romans chapter 4 though. I want to go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Romans chapter 4 is good. Y'all look it up sometime though. <laughs> Galatians 3. In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. <clears throat> We've just seen that from the call of Abram in Genesis 12. Galatians 3 verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That is a weighty, marvelous truth of Scripture. Who is true Israel? If you are of the faith, you are an Israelite. 
If you are of the faith, you are a child of Abraham. Which means that you are a recipient of the promises and the covenant of God that was given to Abraham. And did we not, did we not used to sing that growing up? I remember when I was, and I even, listen, I'll just be honest with you. I didn't like the song even as a child. I thought it was annoying. It just got on my nerves. I didn't like it. But Father Abraham, how many of you sang that when you were little? How many of you still to this day, that song gets stuck in your head sometimes and you're like, oh, I wish that. It just, it just repeats over and over and over. But we, we sing that, right? Father Abraham, have you any son? That's a little children's song that actually has a lot of truth in it. Because isn't one of the lines in the song, and I am one? It is the people of the faith that are the sons of Abraham. But it gets better. This is one of my favorite like aha moments in all of Scripture that I've ever had. I never forget it. In my personal studies, I'm going through Galatians, and, and that's exactly what it was. It was like a light bulb went off, and it was like, huh, oh my goodness, I just saw something I've never seen before. I just had some dot, dots connected that have never been connected before. It's huge. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. You understand what Paul just said there? Paul looks at Genesis chapter 12. Well, he didn't look at chapter 12 because they didn't have chapters. But Paul looks at Genesis and says, The gospel was preached to Abraham. Now, for us as New Testament Christians, we're just like, Huh? The gospel was preached to Abraham? The gospel is... Jesus Christ didn't come till way later. What in the world? How, how was the gospel preached to Abraham? In you shall all the nations be blessed. That's the gospel. Because it was always God's plan to redeem His people, which included Jews and Gentiles. It was never God's plan to just save ethnic Israel. That was never His plan. Never has been, never will be. His plan was to unite all of those who are of the faith, the true children of Abraham. This is the gospel. In you shall all the nations be blessed. The hope of eternal life isn't just for Jewish people. It has always been God's plan to redeem His people. A people that He chose for His own possession. His people have always had a shepherd. Isaiah chapter 40. God's people, which we would say that's us. We identify as God's people. We have always had a shepherd. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom, and gently lead those... That are with young. God's people have always had a shepherd. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. As long as it's raining, I'm going to keep preaching. So I hope it rains for two or three hours. Because y'all can't go outside. So I'm just... God's people have always had a shepherd. John 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I always like to make this point. It's just a neat point to me. There was never a time where Jesus had to be introduced to the Father, right? And there was never a time that the Father had to be introduced to the Son, right? Okay. So what does that mean? The Father and the Son have known each other eternally. And the Spirit we're Baptists. A lot of times we forget the Spirit, right? But the, the Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity. Baptists get nervous sometimes talking about the Holy Spirit. Don't worry. I'm not about to start jumping and shouting. We're good. Some of you are looking at me like, oh, what's he about to say? No. God has eternally existed, which means the Father, Son, and Spirit have all known each other eternally. Jesus just said, I know my own, speaking of the sheep. I know who they are, and they know me, just as the Father knows me. Jesus has always known who His sheep are. There again, we can tie that right back to we have been loved. 
The steadfast love of the Father has been upon us since before the foundation of the world. Hard to comprehend. Nevertheless, it's a beautiful truth. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And every Gentile in the room says, Amen. Right? I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. God's people have always had a shepherd. And what does that shepherd do? He lays down his life for them. To redeem them, to purchase them and to grant them eternal life. So that there will be one flock, there again, Jew and Gentile, one flock, one shepherd. All for the glory of God. Let me just stop right here before we get to this last point. Let me ask this question. What what could even possibly stop God from saving His people? Your answer is good. You have spoken. Nothing. There is nothing that we could possibly conceive of that could ever hinder God from successfully saving His people. This is a truth that we should lean into. We should celebrate. We should rejoice. Again, no matter how hard and difficult life gets, no matter how much suffering you go through, nothing's going to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's not going to stand. God has justified His people. And how did the Father justify His people? Through the death of His Son. Our sins have been atoned for. We have been declared righteous. Not a righteousness of our own. Only the righteousness of Christ will do. And He became sin who knew no sin so that we could become His righteousness. And that leads us to this final point. It has always been God's plan for His people to be eternally with Him. If nothing can hinder God from saving His people, nothing is going to hinder the people of God from being with their Heavenly Father in heaven, in glory, forever. Nothing's going to hinder that. Nothing's going to stop that from happening. We've already read from John 17 in that high priestly prayer. Look at Revelation 21. I'm going to read the first four verses of Revelation 21, and then we're going to look at Revelation 22 real quick. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Revelation 22. Please keep in mind that earlier when we started in Genesis 3, we saw that the access to the tree of life was cut off. But it was always God's plan to redeem His people. The angel showed me, verse 1 of Revelation 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its, uh, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign Forever and ever. In Genesis, we see the access to the tree of life cut off. Right here at the end of Scripture, we see that the tree of life will be there also. It has always been God's plan to redeem His people. It has always been His plan to have a people for His own possession. And that those people would have a shepherd. And that that shepherd would lead them to eternal life and eternal glory. I know that we covered a lot of ground this morning. I know there was a lot of scripture referenced. 
I beg of you in the days ahead. I know that many of you have a, have a, a busy afternoon. But in the days ahead, please take some time to look over those scriptures. Take some time to look over those points that were made. Take some time to meditate and ponder what we talked about this morning. Because I know there is no doubt in my mind that as God's people meditate upon His Word and meditate upon His goodness and His love, His steadfast love that has been set upon us since before the, before the foundation of the earth, and as we meditate upon His sovereignty, His rule and reign over all creation, our faith will grow. Our faith will become more sure and more steadfast. Fast And our joy will be more full. Because the joy of the Christian is to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And to know that we are His. So I know it was a lot of information. Please take some time to, to think it over. Study those passages. Meditate upon the Word of God. And everything we talked about this morning, of course, is for God's people. Talk, looking at it from the vantage point of, of believers, of Christians. I take it in good faith that everybody here is a believer. That this is a church family. But I know that sometimes I've talked with people that say, I went to church for years and I thought that I was a Christian and everything else. But I know a lot of times people don't speak of stuff like that. If they're carrying doubt in their mind, if they're carrying second, second guesses and stuff like that. But I'll say this, if you've got doubts, if you've got concerns, meditating upon the Word is the only thing that's going to grant assurance. And if you're unsaved, it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. So reading of the power of God to save, the goodness of God to save, the faithfulness of God to save, it is the Word that will draw you to repentance and salvation. So thank you for your time this morning. It stopped raining, so I guess I have to stop now. We're going to close in a word of prayer. I, and see, I mean that sincerely. Thank y'all for listening well. I, I could tell that many of you were, you were riding furiously. That, that is what it's all about. If we claim to be Christians, but we don't have a desire to know Him more, I'd say it's, it's at least dangerously close to being a dead faith. So it thrills me, it's encouraging me to see you flipping pages and keeping up and writing stuff down. Thank you for listening well, for being attentive, and I pray that God, through His Spirit, through His Word, would strengthen and ground our faith. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day.